Minister, thank you for those very fruitful comments. Um, much of what I have to say, I think I can discard. You covered it in better than I could possibly do. But this session, <coughs> we've given a, um, a fairly simple, uh, but it may sound slightly enigmatic title. We've called it Why Diaspora Now? Um, Kingsley Aikens, my colleague, will speak shortly. And Kingsley will pick up this question in a particularly focused and uh, typically provocative way. He will ask the question, uh, why do diaspora initiatives fail? But I'm asking a broader question. Why diaspora now? I pose it as a means of introduction to some of the key themes and concerns of the conference. As evidenced by the various constituencies here, uh, there's a broad and very energetic interest in diaspora engagement today, crossing many sectors, governmental, intergovernmental, non-governmental, corporate, civil society, academic. So why diaspora now? Well, firstly, I think it's worth observing, and I'm sure we all know this, that diasporas are not new. If we understand diaspora broadly as the kinship systems whereby people displaced from one part of the world uh, to another have maintained a sense of relationship and identification with the place of origin, well then you can trace diaspora back millennia. Diasporas long precede nation states. And I think we should not lose sight of that, for it reminds us that diaspora's primary relationship is often a sense of attachment to place rather than loyalty to a state. But let's move to the present interest in diaspora by leaders of nation-states and others involved in global affairs. That's relatively recent. Until the 1970s, the term diaspora was most commonly uh, used in relationship to Jewish experiences of exile and migration. Not exclusively, but most commonly. Beginning in the 1970s, though, we begin to see the term picked up in a fresh way. First by scholars, and then by policymakers, and applied much more widely. And so by the 1980s, there was a nascent but growing field of diaspora studies in academia. And in the policy sector, we begin to see a growing interest in state-led diaspora engagement. Now that interest really begins to take off in the 1990s due to two related factors. First, the forces of globalization were unleashed with the ending of the Cold War. And second, the onset of the technology and communications revolution that we are still experiencing and which has so disrupted our living and interaction with each other. Now, as we know, the forces of globalization have led to an increasingly complex interdependence of markets, of nations, of technologies, and accelerated movements of people, of capital and information. There have emerged new geographies of connectivity and commerce, which are remaking the relationship between the state, the market and the citizen. In that context, diaspora is revitalized and retooled as a living transnational network. And so, states have become interested in diaspora capacities. They are now widely viewed by governments as a soft power resource. This growing perception of diaspora as transnational agents of change somewhat reverses, or at least qualifies, an earlier common perception that diasporas were really quite troublesome in relationship to the state. They were once quite commonly viewed with some apprehension as long-distance nationalists. This new, more positive view symbolically transforms emigrants from being troubling others into really celebrated and valued subjects. There's now common talk of brain circulation replacing brain drain, of diaspora as entrepreneurial constellations, of uh, human capital is another commonly used phrase, in the context of a knowledge-based economy. 
Now, starting in the 1990s, there's been a steady growth in formal institutions and offices created by governments and international organizations to engage diaspora energies. More than 30 states currently have full government ministries dedicated to diaspora affairs. More numerous still are the administrative units within the governments, usually within foreign ministries, that have responsibility for diaspora engagement, currently reckoned to number 40% of all UN member states. The growth in government ministries and agencies dedicated to diaspora affairs is by no means universal. Certain countries and regions have much greater interest and or need than others to connect with emigrant communities. There has, for example, been notable growth in ministries and administrative departments in the former Soviet countries in Central and Eastern Europe, reflecting their efforts to reach out to those who left the homelands before independence. The landscape of state-led diaspora institutions is uneven, always mutating, and it's an area about which there is minimal shared knowledge. One of the themes of the conference is state-led diaspora policy, and we have several sessions dedicated to the theme. The greater proportion of diaspora policies and strategies, of course, are aimed at promoting financial links between emigrants and the home country. Investment in domestic development is increasingly encouraged by home governments, and a number of governments have created initiatives and instruments to incentivize investment. In many instances, especially in the global south, the economic interest in diaspora engagement is focused on remittances. That's not surprising given the scale of financial contribution that diasporas make to countries of origin. In 2016, the World Bank data shows that remittance flows to developing countries was 429 million US billion US dollars. Economically crucial to many nations, in some instances it exceeds formal uh, development assistance or even foreign direct investment. In recent years though, we have seen much broader forms of diaspora engagement beyond remittances. There are many signs of states now reaching out to emigrants as entrepreneurial agents, uh, as mobile professional talent. There's a growing recognition that diaspora mobility and connectivity can be a dynamic source of innovation and creativity in many fields, precisely what the minister was saying. He was talking about those who think differently, you recall. Providing fresh knowledge and imaginative leadership that can provide solutions to the challenges of globalization. One of the most commonly cited examples of this is that approximately one-third of Silicon Valley startups are by immigrants or their offspring, primarily those of Indian and Chinese ethnicity. Many countries now have tie-ins to the Silicon Valley ecosystem via diaspora networks. Ireland is one such. The Irish Technology Leadership Group was founded there in 2007, and there are many other diaspora-based organizations in the valley of a similar type. Many countries now have tie-ins to, um, sorry, many countries are now spotting opportunities to activate diaspora communities as access to leading tech systems and ecosystems abroad. In 2013, the French government launched a program called French Tech to support digital startups in France. And in 2015, it began supporting these startups in the French diaspora. These are called French Tech Hubs. They provide a focal point for the French entrepreneurial ecosystem in those regions to boost the development of French startups. There are now 21 of these hubs around the world. In fact, there's one here in Dublin. New information and communication technologies are remaking the time and space of diaspora state relations, radically altering the spheres of communication and connectivity and promoting decentralized networks of activity. 
These networks are facilitating diaspora knowledge and skills transfer, mentoring and education, and we're going to hear examples of this in several of the conference sessions today, including a session titled Digital Diasporas. In many instances, states are initiating private-public partnerships to enhance digital diaspora outreach. For example, the Philippine government has a joint initiative with Microsoft called the Tule, or the Bridge Education Program, which trains overseas Filipino workers and their families on basic computer and electronic communication skills. The aim in part is to help workers gain IT skills that will enhance their employment capacity, but it also enhances the connectivity, of course, between state and diaspora. We're also seeing innovation in the use of mobile phone technologies to power diaspora communications and commerce. This has been a disruptive, often catalyzing force in certain sectors. For example, mobile banking technology is transforming the operations and the costs of transnational remittances. While mobile phones have become crucial means of communication among those seeking to aid refugee and disaster-affected communities. Again, we will hear more about such examples in the conference sessions. It's also the case that the new technologies are disruptive of diplomatic activity surrounding diaspora affairs. After all, diaspora communities may use digital tools and social media to self-organize and create communities which are independent of embassies and formal diplomatic outreach. What has come to be called digital diplomacy needs to innovate and demonstrate the value of its digital platforms to immigrants. Now that can be challenging for traditional diplomatic cultures. The move to digital diplomacy not only recognises the centrality of new technologies to everyday global communications, it also presages recognition of the new forms of corporate power underlying this, and that leading tech companies today have become foreign policy actors. This is perhaps most clearly symbolised by the recent appointment of diplomats responsible for relations with the tech industry. In February of 2017, Denmark's Foreign Office created the post, at first nicknamed the Google Ambassador, but now appointed. The new ambassador has since been appointed and is based in Silicon Valley, but at planning a global team with offices also in Copenhagen and Beijing. This is the world's first tech ambassador, we're told, but will not be the last. In November of 2017, France appointed an ambassador of digital affairs. I'm wondering who will be next. Given the tech hubs in Dublin, perhaps Ireland may want to consider a tech ambassador before too long. Such initiatives should remind us that in this age of globalisation, power, including diplomatic power and authority, is much more distributed and much less centralised than ever before. This is an age of network power, a polylateral world of multiple actors. And in this context, diaspora now have the potential to become agents of diplomatic and development activities. While nation-states have taken the lead in diaspora engagement, the policy field has been much influenced by international organisations responsible for global governance of migration flows. Starting in the 1990s, we see a shift, notably in the focus of the World Bank, for instance, from developmentalist conceptions of aid to a focus on human capital. At the same time, we see a new optimism about the linkages between migration and development emerging, especially around remittances, and the migration for development mantra comes to the fore amongst the NGOs over the last 15 to 20 years. In the 2000s, the United Nations and other organisations promoted interstate dialogues on migration and development and encouraged cooperation on migration governance. The UN created the Global Forum on Migration and Development in 2006, 
An important element of its remit was to steer discourse and migration in a more positive direction. There was an emphasis on sharing responsibility, building partnerships, and yes, engaging diasporas. More recently, we've seen the Joint Migration and Development Initiative and the World Bank's Global Knowledge Partnership in Migration and Development, each seeking to build capacity and deepen the knowledge base regarding migration and development. And additionally, the International Organization for Migration has played an important role. It's encouraged social and economic development through migration, and it has been instrumental in advising governments about diaspora engagement. A significant outcome of this promotion of diaspora engagement by international organisations concerned about global migration management has been the move by several governments in the global north to establish programmes and projects to encourage diasporas in their countries from the global south to engage with countries of origin. In some instances, this is with a view to building economic linkages, but also driven by concerns around security and governance, and so diaspora are viewed as proto-diplomatic agents. In Europe, examples include the work of the German Development Agency, the Swiss Agency for Development Cooperation, the Department for International Development in the UK. In the United States, the United States Agency for International Development has been instrumental, sometimes in partnership with the US Department of State, in developing diaspora-focused initiatives. I'm pleased to say that we have representatives from several of the agencies I've just mentioned at the conference. My references to global governance and migration should remind us that the drivers of diaspora engagement are often at once political as well as economic, and that the network space of diaspora communication and action can be complicated and volatile. This is also to say that while diaspora engagement can raise great opportunities for states, it does present challenges. Diasporas are not always clearly nor uniformly aligned with state policy. This is perhaps clearest, of course, in political matters and in matters of conflict and humanitarian crisis. More and more we're seeing interest in the role of diaspora actors in conflict transformation, uh, another theme of the conference. The state-diaspora relationship is a delicate, I might even say precarious thing. It cannot, or at least it should not, be taken for granted. All too often states have sought to engage migrants and their offspring as a homogenous group. In recent years, though, I think a more temperate discourse has emerged, emphasizing partnerships, engagement, and collaboration. This is, in conclusion, to say that diaspora engagement is still evolving. I've only offered a very small snapshot of it here, and I look forward to hearing alternative and more developed views over the next few days. And I conclude by reprising my question, why diaspora now? To the answers I've already sketched, let me add a final explicit reason because we need them, which is to say we need to recognize their value at a time of growing ethno-nationalism around the world, where we see a widespread rise in protectionism and call for borders. All this, uh, at this time, there is a greater need for transnational bridges and communications. And it's in that spirit of collaboration that we host this conference and we welcome your participation. Thank you.